Welcome to the Self-Evident and Forgotten Podcast, a show with conversations on the truths of liberty and odd opinions. We're your hosts, Stanton, Christy, and Cody. As always, the opinions we express are ours and ours alone, and they don't necessarily reflect those of our employers or any other organization we may belong to. Wherever you are, and however you're listening and whatever you're doing, thanks for tuning in. Now relax and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Self-Evident and Forgotten. We are your hosts, Stanton, Christie, and Cody. Recently, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the military council that advises the president, their chairman, General Mark A. Milley, has come under some heat for his remarks before a congressional panel. The subject of his current disagreement with some Republicans is him defending policies in the military that purportedly teach our armed servicemen and women uh, woke ideas that Republicans think undermine our military preparedness. The debate is confused, but it reveals a wider problem, that namely being ideological bureaucrats. And we're going to talk about those today. But first, as always, the random question of the episode. Chrissy, you didn't get to do the one last time, so you're going to be first today. What what is your favorite Independence Day memory? Ooh, that is a very good one. Mm. So actually I have a ton. It's hard to choose. I would have to say my mom would always get us like very specific snacks when we would watch fireworks for 4th of July. Um, and the, the best thing when I was a kid, we ate pretty healthy. Like my mom made granola bars and all of that. And, you know, which paid off as adults. We almost never get sick. My brothers and I, but anyway, she would let us have a whole can of pop, um, out the 4th of July and root beer or orange cream soda were definitely the best. So I now do that with my kids because I don't usually let them have pop, but on July 4th, they get to have one. As I suckle down my second or third Diet Dr. Pepper of the day. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> oh, Cody. Was it, is it me? Oh, man. Absolutely. It's you. Um, okay. So my, so for many of you know, I spent uh, a significant amount of time in Canada. Uh, and when Media. I did... I actually lived on a border city. So I lived uh, on the Canadian side, but you could see the the American side. And uh, anybody who's spent a significant amount of time and my Canadian friends that are listening, I love you guys. Uh, But Canadians often don't think all that highly of Americans uh, in many contexts. Wait, they they have a a pretentious (laughs) view of us? What? I'm shocked that they were so arrogant i am just utterly astounded i don't know if it's pretentious or arrogant but that you know they have certain reservations about their southern uh cousins maybe uh-huh, uh-huh. but my my favorite so canadian independence day which is fake because canada just like basically asked england for their constitution back so it's like they've just repatriated it so canadian uh, independence day is july 1st and so i just remember everybody would go out to kind of like watch the fireworks on July 1st for Canada day. And they were just garbage, like hot garbage. It was so bad. People would barely show up. And then for the town that was a 10th of a size of the Canadian town on the other side of the river uh, in America, 
everybody would go back out for the 4th of July to watch the American fireworks. Okay. So it was this like disconnect of everybody being like, ah, like hating on America. And then magically when independence for day rolls around, everybody was real happy to celebrate. (laughs) That's great. This brings up a conversation I've often had with my students, especially my foreign exchange students from Europe and Canada. They always say, why don't Americans spend more money on their healthcare or blah, 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 or whatever. And I say, well, that's because we spend so much of our money on protecting you with our military. <laughs> this is just another example of Canadian just, just siphoning off on our fun with our, with our, with our explosives. Like, come on. American propaganda at its finest. <laughs> Man, oh, I've got a lot of good Independence Day memories, but I think one of my favorites is just... Um, my cousin Derek, who passed away a few years ago, big, massive pyromaniac. Just he, he and my other cousin Kevin just loved playing with fire. Um, and he would always make the trip up to Wyoming, come on back, and have the most illegal crap ever. My grandmother has a little lot yacht in her a uh, uh, little lot in her backyard um, where we would just set these off. And you know, we're a small town, so the sheriffs and the police don't really care, but reflecting on how big some of these and they're like up to my chest big tall they're like these like <laughs> massive things um those are just a lot of fun and you know he was a good few years older than i was so it was always like ah cousin derek's got the fireworks so that was always that was always great so yes independence day we should be dropping this either just right before maybe even on independence day so who knows right Ooh. i'm sorry we won't be talking about independence day themed things but you know what's more american than saying some ruling bureaucrat thousands of miles away is terrorizing and tyrannizing my civil uh my civil liberties who what's more american than that <laughs> i i, I mean, that's what july 4th is all about <laughs> to be fair the most the the only thing more american than that is smuggling things against the government's taxation protocols so <laughs> it's Listen, fair sam adams is my guy He's, he is the Han Solo of American myth uh, myth lore. I love that analogy. I'm gonna have to use that one. <laughs> hey, he he. I I don't know how else to say. It. Samuel Adams, the smuggler in chief, is Han Solo <laughs> before Han Solo. Like how how else can you think about it? Great point. It's fair. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, I I can't say I've thought about it before. <laughs> but well, now you have, and now you can't I get support out of it. I support Two it. Two of us are Star Wars fans on here, but one is not. Wait, wait, oh, harsh. Hold, hold on now. Hold on a sec. We, are we, I don't know who's who, but we're calling into question my Star Wars credentials here. Yes, Cody, <laughs> I am. Would, would you rather you for something this time? <laughs> well, if you haven't heard, the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, and General Milley were testifying at Avery's House Armed Services Committee. And basically all they do is decide how much money the Department of Defense gets. And they were discussing the massive 2022 uh, Defense Department budget. And there, Representative Matt Gates, a Republican from, uh, from Florida, he asked the Secretary and Chairman about uh, teaching something that's called critical race theory or CRT in the U.S. military. Now, this episode is not about CRT, but for those of you who don't know what it is, essentially, it's uh, it's an academic concept born from Marxist analysis that the nation's legal, economic, and social systems are designed intentionally to support white 
racial superiority and a hierarchy that oppresses minorities, which is to say it is possible to be racist without yourself holding any racial prejudices, intentional or not, yourself. And laws may be colorblind, but how they are applied can be discriminatory, even if those who apply the law are not themselves prejudiced. We'll probably talk about critical race theory in its own dedicated episode sometime in the future, but today I don't want to quite focus on that. What I'd like to share with you is General Milley's comments himself. Um, sure. Um, first of all, on the issue of critical race theory, et cetera, I'll, I'll obviously have to get much smarter on whatever the theory is. Um, but I do think it's important, actually, uh, for those of us in uniform to be open-minded and be widely read. And the United States Military Academy is a university. Uh, and it is important that we train and we understand. Uh, and I, I want to understand white rage. And I'm white. And I want to understand it. So what is it that caused thousands of people to assault this building and try to overturn the Constitution of the United States of America. What caused that? I want to find that out. I want to maintain an open mind here, and I do want to analyze it. It's important that we understand that because our soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, and Guardians, they come from the American people. So it is important that the leaders, now and in the future, do understand it. I've read Mao Zedong. I've read, I've read Karl Marx. I've read Lenin. That doesn't make me a communist. So what is wrong? with understanding, having some situational understanding about the country for which we are here to defend. And I personally find it offensive that we are accusing the United States military, our general officers, our commissioned, non-commissioned officers of being, quote, woke or something else because we're studying some theories that are out there. That was started at Harvard Law School years ago, and it proposed that there were laws in the United States antebellum laws prior to the Civil War that led to uh, a power differential with African Americans that were three quarters of a human being when this country was formed. And then we had a Civil War and Emancipation Proclamation to change it. And we brought it up to the Civil Rights Act in 1964. It took another 100 years to change that. So look it, I do want to know. And I respect your service and you and I are both Green Berets. But I want to know. And it matters to our military and the discipline and cohesion of this military. And I thank you for the opportunity to make a comment on that. Thank you, General. Uh all right, so whether or not West Point under Superintendent Lieutenant General Darrell Williams has embraced the controversial theory, or if there were simply some moments of good old-fashioned intellectual debate, uh, this is something that another Florida representative, Michael Waltz, is currently trying to determine. For our sake here at Self-Evident and Forgotten, I want to hone in on two things specifically. One, how do you keep your military apolitical and non-ideological through congressional oversight, while at the same time enabling your military professionals and educators, like at West Point, the ability to enable future officers to deal with complex issues like race in our modern world, because that's a big task. And the second thing is, and really I think this is the priority, is such an apolitical and non-ideological goal even possible? I mean, Maybe in the military might be where there is literally a legally binding order upon military personnel to keep their opinions to themselves. But what about bureaucrats in places like the Department of Justice or the Treasury or the Environmental Protection Agency or even hell, even in the civilian part of the Department of Defense? I mean, after all, of all federal employees across 14 agencies who donated $2 million in 2016, a whopping 1.9 million of it went to Hillary Clinton. 
Self-identified Democrats constitute 63% of federal senior executives, just below the presidential appointment level. And the American Federal Government Employees, excuse me, the American Federation of Government Employees, which is the union of the past 16 federal elections, they've donated on average 94% of its contributions to Democrats. Isn't this like saying the media is nonpartisan, but because all the people who work there are Democrats, that makes the media just Democrat? This is my question. And thankfully, I have two well-thought, well-educated, well-spoken individuals to answer this question. So Cody and Chrissy, what do you make of this? Question, you asked like six in a row. I know. It's like (laughs) I'm a teacher and I'm just trying to get you to think. We'll start with the first one. How do you keep your military nonpartisan, yet enabling your military educators to teach about things that are borderline partisan and of themselves? I, mean, I, I do think it's a really important question because, I mean, you could totally apply it to like the FBI and other agencies like that as well. CIA, FBI, um, military, you don't want them to be partisan arms of the government. And I, mm-hmm. I say this as the chair of the Republican Party here in Colorado. Um, so I like partisanship just fine, but not when it comes to national defense or investigation of citizens. And so I think we've definitely seen it go sideways multiple times in our nation when the people leading those departments um, become overly political. And so, I mean, how you fix it is, of course, of course, the larger question. But I think part of it is making sure whoever leads it knows what the purpose of the organization is. And the purpose of the FBI is not to go after the current president's um, targets, whoever the current president thinks are his or her personal enemies. That's not the goal of the FBI. And if the director begins to think that way, it becomes a political position. And and same thing with with the military, when they think that their role is to teach some woke ideology and theories that, you know, philosophers and professors can't even agree on. Um, The purpose of the military is to defend our nation. Like it's pretty simple and getting expanding out. It's like, oh, we're such a like wonderful, free, like woke nation leader of the world. Why do we have our military have all these philosophical discussions? Like way out of the realm of what the military is actually designed to do. And that's where we get into trouble. Yeah, I mean, I think the military has too much say in daily life. I mean, the military is too big, too powerful. I mean, I know like we might disagree on this, but the defense budget is massive what like is it, our military billion it, right now yeah it's huge um and so i mean that's a problem in and of itself anytime you've got that large of an of an entity it then starts perpetuating its own power and then when it when you know the lead individuals do hold ideological viewpoints it's a lot more dangerous because they wield a lot more power and they have a lot more say um the other thing that you get well and if the military is confined to its, let's call it its constitutionally designated purpose, mm. uh, it's irrelevant, right? It doesn't matter what ideologies that are in place. Um, and so I think that's that's the other side of that is the military is kind of self-perpetuating its own power and has now you know gained footholds in way more houses uh, than it probably should. But also on the other side of that is is it's this idea of kind of this constitutional creep that we see in all other um, entities and institutions. Because so, I mean, as a 
general matter, I, I think it's a great idea, maybe controversial statement, great idea that, um, you know, like West Point or other military institutions teach critical theory, right? Because critical race theory is just the, the latest development out of critical theory, which is the Marxist philosophy. It's just applying it to race at this point. Um, like, I think it's really important that people know that and that military leaders understand Marxism and critical theory so that they can compare it to the, you know, philosophy that the United States is founded upon and natural rights theory and individual rights. And they can see the uh, ideological benefits of, you know, the natural rights theory in our founding. I mean, I don't think that we should ever remove education in, in, in those instances. And I might even be open to it being mandated for military. I don't know. I don't like the word mandated, right? I mean, anytime you mandate something, I I dislike. But what being um, mandated specifically? Education in the balance between critical theory and natural rights theory. Okay. Um, Hmm. I, I think it's, if somebody is going to be charged with being an officer in the United States military, then they probably should understand what they're upholding and having a philosophical basis in addition to a a basis in tactics, um, I think would be relatively important. Um, And so I I think I might be okay with it in that instance. I obviously wouldn't be okay with it in any other instances, but that might be a point where um, because you're given power through the constitution, then maybe you have a obligation to educate on the other side. So are you, are you saying like officers solely? So just like the leaders or all enlisted, like anyone in the military? No, I mean, the whole point for West Point, the other military colleges, right. Is a direct track for, for right. military leadership. So I think that that okay. for the purposes of those institutions, if they're going to be, you know, funded by, I mean, a lot of colleges are funded by taxpayers, but they're going to be funded by in a direct funnel um, or intended as a direct funnel for military leadership, then I could see it being uh, appropriate. <laughs> so I want to push back on both of you here. So uh, one uh, was, it, and it, it's kind of weird because you're both, you're both touching on, on the same thing, just in slightly different ways. Like, Christine, though, you you mentioned not uh, you want you want your military to be focused on its job, the protection of the of the country. So you don't want them dealing with all this kind of nonsense, right? So to speak. Right. But at the same time, the modern military, with what it does and how it does it, namely so many people from so many stretches of the country, a military officer don't they need to be aware of a lot of these sensitive issues to be able to lead? and direct policy within the military because you know your military isn't it's not segregated the military is fully integrated to uh, a radical degree and in fact the military goes to great lengths to recruit people of various backgrounds but with those backgrounds come problems of trying to bring people together under one military unit Mm -hmm. do we not need them to do not need military officers to be trained on how to philosophically and even ideologically think about this stuff Yeah, I mean, I think these are good questions. And I think generally, I guess I'm not a fan of going out and 
recruiting people based on qualifications they did not choose and they cannot help to be a part of the military. I mean, do you see China doing that? Do you see Iran doing that? Do you see Russia doing that? Um, no, but do we, want, do we want to compare ourselves to China, Iran, well, and so on? Well, and here's so what I mean. though: they are, they are all vying to be the world power. And in the United States, I think sometimes gets too comfortable being like, oh, well, we're obviously the world power here. So let's go down this woke path and talk about philo- um, philosophy and ideology and how to all get along and work with each other while China and Russia and Iran and all these other countries are building up an actual military that knows how to fight and doesn't really care um, necessarily how they treat their soldiers. Now, I'm not advocating for that. Of course, we are more focused on humans right, human rights and better relationships as a civilized country in comparison to them. But we have to be in reality, I think, too, about what the other world world powers are doing and not let America get behind because we're so focused on being woke and modern um, that we're recruiting people who really never wanted to be in the military in the first place and shouldn't go be in the military. Like, I am very much a fan of you should be in the military if you choose to be in the military. If that's the career plan you choose. And my brother's in the military. My uncle was, my dad was, like many people in my family have been in the military, but every single one of them made that choice. And I would argue they're better soldiers for having made that choice for themselves and not being recruited based on something they didn't choose. So I just think as a whole, you know, I guess the melting pot of everything that's being taught in the military today and focused on is not how to be a fighting force that continues as a world power, but instead literally how to make everyone happy under the guise of philosophy and ideology. I don't really think that's what it is. Um, if that's what it were, like what Cody's talking about, I'd support that kind of teaching. Contrast world philosophies among our military leaders. I don't think that's where this is really going in today's world. Brian, I can't I can't speak for the superintendent of the academy on whether or not that's his goal, but I mean, I you think, can. I think I can't speak for him. Can you speak for him? I mean, we can try. I mean, his Just letter go for it. His letter to Walt seems to suggest that's, that's, that's. anyway. Go. Do you want to respond to Chrissy before I push back on you? Yeah. Uh, so uh, Christy came to two conclusions. The the first I uh, entirely agree with, and I don't necessarily agree with the path. And then the latter I I agree with. Uh, so the first was that. Um, we shouldn't be recruiting people based on kind of their immutable characteristics, things that they don't choose. And I totally agree on that. I uh, care significantly less about this idea of being a world power. Uh, I don't think it's the proper role of government or the military. I would much rather, you know, generally be the quiet guy in the corner of the bar that everybody understands that they don't want to mess with. Uh, Not necessarily the guy going out and picking fights in order to assert dominance in the bar. Um, but I might agree with you on that, actually. Like, <laughs> it's just another definition of a world power. Like, that's fair. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah. So I, you know, I don't, I care less about the, um, you know, the status of world power and just more care about securing our citizens uh, to start with, at least uh, individual rights and then going from there. But I smell a foreign policy episode in the future. Oh, I've got some, yeah. <laughs> my, I, that, that could be a good one. Um, let's, let's finish this one first. Yeah. <laughs> I also, uh, I don't think the military should recruit at all. Um, I think it's a, it's an inappropriate role. I think individuals who, you know, choose to take that career path should choose to take that career path, but I don't think it's a proper role of government to recruit its own, uh, people and its own perpetuation of power. Right. Cause it's just, I just don't think that's a, that's the, the proper role for the military. So, um, what I'm, so what I'm hearing is our military and foreign policy dependent upon how many volunteers we get. 
No, no conscription whatsoever, right? Correct. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the other side, the the kind of the latter point that Christy made, I, I completely agree with. You know, I, I think if it's this idea of compare contrast world philosophies, I think that's great. I don't think that's what they're going for here. You know, I I'm very skeptical of this idea of introducing this teachings these teachings at this point under this guise. But I mean, if you're going to teach critical theory and you're going to have I don't know Ibrahim Kennedy up there teaching at West Point then you better be putting, I don't know, like James Lindsay on the other side of it, who, you know, spends his time just debunking critical theory. I mean, if you're going to present with an, an expert, and I use air quotes, uh, in the idea of critical theory and Marxist ideology, then you better put somebody that's swinging just as hard on the other side in that classroom also. And ultimately, that's where I get um, where I would agree with Christy there is, you know, I just don't think that that's going to happen. Okay, and I and I think I'm I'm with you on, on both of those counts. Um, I think I'm in generally agreement with both of you since you're. I mean, you you've you've clarified the tension that was there. But Cody, you said something earlier about how you you have a hesitancy of mandating these kind of things, this kind of trading. You also express you know a desire for a very much non ideological, non partisan view. Um, and maybe, maybe, but. There is there is this uh, school of thought, and it's outlined by a man named Elliot Cohen. He pretty much out, uh, makes it clear in this book called Supreme Command. It's a it's a great read. Some people don't like it. Some people hate it. But the general idea is this: generals are really really bad at war. They're great at battles. They're great at theaters of war, but they're bad at war itself because war, as Klaus Fitz says, is an extension of politics and it's an extension of the political state's goals and objectives which is why non-military officers have generally done very well in commanding war and he mentions people like churchill and lincoln and so on and so forth but this but to, but to bring this back into it if war is an extension of politics does that not make military simply an objective of the political state and if, and if the political state has a you know a critical if, if, if the political state is woke why shouldn't the military be woke because war is not an extension of politics at least it shouldn't be oh, oh okay so is it or shouldn't because so i i guess what i'm saying is clausewitz wrong is is the man who understood war just straight up wrong or what? No. So war shouldn't be an extension of politics. It very much is, right? I mean, it's the way that many countries enforce their ideologies, um, even in even in the modern era. But this was true, I mean, dating back to the Greeks. We're going to go mm-hmm. pre-Roman. Uh, <laughs> and, and long before, right? I mean, this was... Uh, it was an imposition of... of ideology upon individuals and actually this is really interesting something that happens in the um the roman republic and even later in the roman empire right is where it's uh it becomes a military the ideology they're enforcing is like tax raising and and revenue sources as well as kind of like this idea of protecting rome by building buffers but they actually allowed and the persians did this as well um and, and other you know some of the Greeks did this as well of, you know, allowing conquered countries and conquered nations and conquered peoples to keep their religion, their philosophies, their ideologies, 
Um, but that's not because war at that point wasn't politics. It's just politics then were different. It was raising funds, finding slaves, and building buffers. Uh, and that's what they cared about that time. I think one of the problems with kind of, you know, where I flinch at this idea of being a world power is this idea that we can enforce our worldview on other individuals through military action. Um, you know, we've seen, you know, country topplings, dictator topplings and whatnot for, I mean, I could say hundreds of years, but that's being modest. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, sometimes they might pragmatically turn out for the better and pragmatically turn out for the worse. But I think uh, as a matter of principle, those are just generally wrong. So that's, I don't think that war should be used as a political tool. So what is war then? What, what should war be? Defense. If somebody attacks you and, and hurts your people, then you should be able to defend yourself. That's that's the only thing that war should be, is in order to preserve basic human right and basic human in, uh, liberty. In which case, it's a purely tactical mechanism, a purely tactical exercise. Correct. Yeah, I'd actually, and perhaps surprisingly, <laughs> largely agree. The um, I think we've seen in America's history some of the international wars we've engaged in, arguably for political purposes, have not led other countries to share our worldviews. Um, and in fact, you could argue have backfired quite majorly. Um, I don't think war and force convince people to come to your religion or your worldview or anything. I'm a fan of missionaries and, um, you know, charitable organizations that go in and try to change a culture. Honestly, if you want to change a worldview, that's far more effective than forced through war. Um, You know, as good as some intentions may have been of people leading those wars, it just flat out doesn't work out that way. And we see that time and time again throughout history. Um, The only thing I might expand on, though, is I entirely agree that war should chiefly be for the defense of your own country to preserve the rights and protect the lives of your own citizens. I tend to think that a world power (laughs) has somewhat of a responsibility, perhaps, to use their war power to stop genocide around the world and to stop um, the violation of human rights of people groups who cannot defend themselves. I'm going to put the um, I mean, I'm going to put the pin in there because that's that's the foreign policy question. I think that's like a really ooh, good all right. Jump there could be so much for, to say about that. No, no, so that that true. that's a great way to like end and end and begin the next discussion on foreign policy. But I do want to bring it back to what what we're trying to get at is that should military officers reflect the political ideology of the civilian leadership? I don't think they need to just because you don't have to be a Democrat or Republican to be a good general. Like I would argue it's more important that you understand why America is America and our founding values. And naturally I would argue that would make you a Republican, but um, that aside, I think it's, it's important that you understand what America is and what America's role in the world should be. I don't really care what your political party is if you're a general um, leading our army into war. Uh, man, Christine and I are going to go like four for four right now in agreement. Uh, yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, I think you you need to understand the maybe the the 
the mission of the country kind of idea, right? You need to understand your country's mission statement in order for you to be leading a force arm of that country. And so I think under understanding the underlying um, our founding and the principles of, of, of our country is hugely important when you're a person that can go and take life on behalf of, of, of our country. I mean, we're not talking about, you know, individual soldiers who, you know, might be actually effectuating the, you know, the taking of life, but we're talking about individuals that lead those leaders that lead those soldiers that are hugely impactful on the, um, you know, effect of America abroad. So I, th- I do think that that is hugely important, but the natural question that comes from that is who gets to set that mission statement? Is it, is it the current president? Is it the declaration this, of independence? This and, is my, this is my critique because I agree. Like I, I think the entire government should operate according to the declaration of independence principles and the original intent of the constitution and so on and so forth. However, uh, militaries that don't <laughs> countries that don't have military coups like ours are ones in which the military is subject to civilian control. Our civilian leadership may or may not be in alignment with the Declaration of Independence principles or the intent of the Constitution. So I'm asking, should a military say go to hell, Biden, or to whoever, if they are not constitutional freedom lovers? Or do they follow their civilian leadership even at the expense of the Constitution uh, principles and Declaration principles? Like, what what's a general to do? <laughs> so I think that that they should always defer to inaction if they believe it's unconstitutional. So I don't think that anybody should force action that they think will then resolve the constitutional side. So if you know Biden says stand down and they think no, you know in America we would go and fight this battle and then they go and fight this battle. I think that's inappropriate. But if Biden says, you know attack this, I don't know, camp of civilian Indians located somewhere in the west of the western part of the United States. So that's a question of, you know, if if an order is lawful or not. I guess what I'm getting at is, you know, if if you're a woke president, so to speak, and you instruct the, the superintendent of West Point to institute not, it's not unconstitutional. It's just we want you to implement this curriculum that is in contrast, direct contrast to the declaration, what do you do? Like, do, would you would you want the superintendent to say, no, I'm going to teach the declaration principles and maybe I'll offer this as a comparison, but I'm not going to teach CRT as the only thing or, yes. do, you, or do you follow the president? Yes. I think the superintendent should have a little more say there just because just because a president claims to have certain power doesn't mean the constitution actually grants them that power. Um, so replace the president with congressional law. Uh, I guess it depends on what we're talking about, but I also think that like superintendent of military institutions, like it's their job to run those schools. And I think if a military institution like West Point, the Air Force Academy, whatever we're talking about, um, shifts what they teach based on the president in office, that is exactly how military becomes political. So I don't think the president should have a say over what's taught in military institutions. I think being the commander in chief means that you direct 
how your military is used and where they go in the world and who they defend and who they attack, but not what's taught in military institutions. I think that should be established and chosen by people whose responsibility it is to take care of that. Cody, did I break the four for four? I don't know, because this is a tough (laughs) question, right? Because if you're talking about direct orders in military, right? We have a commander in chief, we have a structure that's right. That's obvious. You know, I would, like I said, defer to inaction and then let the court handle it, right? Right, but that, but that that's a court martial stuff. That's lawful orders. That's not what yeah. I'm talking about. I'm talking about Education. is the correct should the curriculum be always and forever something that supports the original founding ideals, which may or may not be in violation of congressional law or presidential instructions, or because we believe in a civilian controlled military, should these academies do as our civilian commanders and civilian legislators woke or not say i was repeating what i had previously stated and avoiding your question because i was trying to think faster and see if i could come up so here's my problem right is is you know this is all well and good when we're talking about somebody that's potentially leading that is teaching philosophies that we you know may or may not agree with but then what happens when you get somebody in place that's teaching critical theory and Marxist as, you know, the dominant philosophy, and then you want to try and remove them. I mean, you got to think about this both ways because our nation wasn't founded on a Marxist philosophy. It was founded on individual liberty and and freedom and individual responsibility. So I, I think ultimately those, if you are, you know, a, uh, a member of the military, you're answerable to, at the end of the day, the people. And, you know, I think it's important for the commander in chief to have military flexibility in order to effectuate combat and war. Um, if that's going to be a feature of our system, then that's, you know, that flexibility is important. But, you know, I think if if somebody is teaching something to our military leaders and, and the people through their elected representatives say that that's wrong, I, I don't know that I, I could disagree with that. I might disagree with the people. But if it passes something through the House and the Senate, maybe that would be the most appropriate control because then you've got, you know, the the ultimate check on authority. And then you also have the judicial branch, which has been able to evaluate those questions since at least 1806. So I think, you know, congressional direction would be great, but, you know, that's in an ideal world. I mean, Congress barely passes laws it is. And when it does, it forces agencies to interpret it these days. So so the military is accountable to the people and they should follow the people, whether the people suck or not. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, I mean, that, that pretty much answers that question. <laughs> I, mean, unless, I mean, listen, I, it, it really, I mean, the, 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 the more found fun, fundamental question is does, should the military act as kind of the core of, of the nation's character? No. And I don't think it's the core of the character. I'm not saying I'm not saying it is either. I'm asking if it should, because you know, a lot of people want to look at, say, the Supreme Court as the last bastion of fairness, maybe in violation also of democracy no. or not. <laughs> let, no, let, but, hey, listen, but what I what I'm getting at is there's a lot of people who love and cherish the ideas of liberty and who love and cherish the ideas of 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 um of the declaration who are very much saying that our military does represent the best of our nation. And uh, what, right. But I'm saying that's true. That's what they say. 
And I'm trying to bring out the point that that is that whether or not that issue, it should not be the case because military should be answerable to the people. Maybe the people in the military have a character better than the people who lead them, but the military should always be answerable to the larger population as a whole, the civilian population. Right. Rather than like people following the military, which is, I guess, some of the mindset that could come from the conclusion that they are the best of us. Um, I can guarantee you. So my brother who's in the military and I, he's great, but he would definitely tell you that the, <laughs> the presentation of, of every single person in the military as like the best of us is in his words, not at all accurate. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't know. I have not been a part of the military. I, I think more what it is with the time in the military, Supreme Court, any branch of government, and people love to pick on Congress and the politicians. But I would I would argue that none of those branches are the best of us. They are all part of a free American system that together operates collectively to represent the people, to defend the people, to um, do things, do, do the power, carry out the power that people have granted to them. And so would our hope be that people in every single one of those branches are representatives of high character and good morals and American ideology? Absolutely. But should we exalt any one of those branches high above the people? Uh, no, I don't think so. Yeah, I think, I mean, absolutely. The, the, the best of us is the people. I mean, we are you know, a nation founded upon the people and, and the people have conveyed certain of their rights to the government for the, the exercise of the government's powers. I mean, you know, there's there's been a limitation on some of our rights in order for the government to exercise its power. And the idea that any individual in government represents the best of us, I, I think is just deeply flawed. You, there's no single individual that represents the best of America. I mean, you could point to a number of individuals that embody our ideals and our great, um, you know, uh, um, exemplars of the American spirit and the American idea and of the Declaration of Independence, but no government body embodies, you know, the best of us. No governmental entity is, you know, the perfect, definitely not today, is the perfect exercise of, you know, the American way. So, you know, I think it's, uh, I think, yeah, I'd just leave it there. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So, so, I think we've we've covered the military question pretty clearly. And the reason we talk about it in this way is because, you know, military officers and personnel on the whole have direct orders to keep their public comments nonpartisan, not ideological, unless it is in support of the military itself or the general American project. That does not apply as much to other bureaucrats like in the Department of the Treasury or the Department of Justice or anywhere else, right? There's something called the Hatch Act, which you know, prevents them from being overtly political in some aspects. That doesn't stop them from being registered Democrats or registered Republicans, right? And technically speaking, no bureaucratic agency is partisan, and they are all technically answerable to the larger executive agencies. Um, primarily the president. But like I said earlier, that's like saying the media is nonpartisan. Yes, that's true. But that's also ignoring the fact that 90 plus percent of all media personnel are Democrats. Now, we're not here to say that Democrats are anti-freedom or not, 
right? We here at Self-Evident for God, we are a nonpartisan podcast, even if we have a particularly partisan leader. <laughs> that said, we embrace anyone, Republican, Libertarian, Democrat, who values liberty in and of itself. So what I want to focus on when it comes to the bureaucracy is this. Can you, should you, enforce a non-partisanship, non-ideological construct within the wider bureaucracy in the same way you do the military? No, I, I don't think the military should. So the military should be partisan. Hold on. I, Those are two different things. I, I Enforcing so, an ideological or... An ideological know. and political neutrality. That's what, that's basically what we said earlier. On them as officials is different than just broadly enforcing it, right? Because the military, it's a little bit different. They're just a little bit more reserved on what they can do, even off-duty in some instances, but certainly while in uniform. But that's same. I mean, I, I'll get away with lose some of my credibility here. I mean, I was a federal official for a, a point <sighs> in my career. Um, you know, they are, I mean, despite everybody in my office and me knowing exactly what the political ideology of 75 to 80% of my office was, they are very careful and, and are very strict with Hatch Act. And they're a lot more harsh on your speech uh, whenever it can be construed as part of a, a government speech or as you acting on behalf of the government. So I don't think it's a proper role for government to force individuals, even those that, you know, work for the government to not hold ideological views or not hold an ideological bend. I just think it's inappropriate for those views or that bend to affect other individuals' rights. Well, the, well, this is, I mean, th this is the question, right? Because, in, you know, uh, military, uh, an armed serviceman or woman, yes, they're not always in their uniform. They do have the ability to speak their mind. Um, limit in a limited way when they're out of uniform but because of the nature of being an armed serviceman or woman their neutrality that's required of them publicly is more prevalent and and dominates their life a little bit larger than it would say an irs agent what what i'm what i'm trying i don't know if i agree with your premise so i mean i was a federal official my brother's still in the military still in mm -hmm. service and I don't think our our public or private acts were restricted any differently than, I mean, I think the only thing that might be different is he's more obviously a government official when he's in uniform. Uh, and right, you know, he has to have my, a special haircut. But aside from that. Perhaps my anecdotal evidence for my own colleagues is not quite as strong as I would be led to believe. I, they're pretty, I mean, where I was at least, they were pretty harsh with the Hatch, hatch Act. Okay. Um, and, and really enforcing it, which I think is, is a fair thing because basically what they're doing is yes, they're restricting speech. Yes. They're restricting expression, but they're restricting tax dollars funding that speech and expression. It's not that they're stopping you from speaking or holding a viewpoint or acting upon your viewpoints. It's that they're preventing government funding from pushing into those viewpoints. And so if you do anything political as a, as a government employee you're supposed to do so off the clock and so i guess well, maybe just more harsh policing of that call me so skeptical cody but I, that sounds pretty pretty i don't know naive to think that they just 
turn the clock on and off whenever they're at the office or at the bar. Like, I mean, I don't know. But I actually don't think, I mean, I think clearly we've all had different experiences with it. But so my dad is um, an agent in the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration. And like how they enforce the Hatch Act is crazy. If you ask me, Um, I don't, as applied, I don't like the Hatch Act. I think it's intentions were correct um, because government official like on the clock in uniform shouldn't be, you know, advocating for partisan things, but they extend it where he literally as a federal employee cannot even on his own time go work on a partisan campaign and he cannot fundraise for a Republican or Democrat candidate. Um, And in his office, they've allowed like pictures of Obama like to stay up in people's offices. But if anyone wanted to do Trump, like they weren't allowed, Um, which obviously that's a misapplication of it, but to extend it beyond work hours and like you flat out can't fundraise for a partisan candidate because you're a government employee, like I think is encroaching on their rights, but it's how the Hatch Act is applied sometimes. Yeah, I think the key here is, right, the idea or the underlying principle here is that you can't use, you know, taxpayer dollars in order to fund political speech or activity. And so I think you have to draw the line there. So if you're in your off hours using your own, like the salary that you had earned, that's no longer the taxpayer dollars, right? That's now your income in order to effectuate or fight for your viewpoints, your beliefs, and or the representative that you want to support, I think that that would be inappropriate. That's not okay. Now, if somebody goes out and goes, oh, yeah, I'm a you know chief at X agency. Oh, and I think you should vote for this. That violates the Hatch Act. Right. That would. Yeah, if you use your title to promote someone, that'd be improper. Correct. Or if you don't affirmatively distinguish that this is a non-official duty, especially when asked about it. So I think that there's a line there. The problem at the end of the day is, and and Stanton, I think what you're getting at is something very different. I mean, problem number one, let's go back to episode five or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. The bureaucracy has too much power. Right. So when people have an ideological bend, they can use that to use the, to wield the power of the bureaucracy. If the government- That's primarily my concern. Yeah. And so that's kind of a pragmatic concern is, is, but I don't think the right solution there is then to- I mean, I don't, how do you stop people from holding beliefs? I, I don't know how you would solve that instead of just so, solving the problem of bureaucracy having too much power. At the risk of sounding like well, it's going to get 1984, isn't it? Uh, this feels a little 1984 You sat at up. The, at, yeah, the, yeah. Ri- yeah. at the risk of sound like an inclusion officer. Huh. So, interparty member here. Yeah. You're both lawyers. And you both believe in liberty, primarily, I would imagine, religious liberty. How do you explain something like the Colorado Commission on Civil Rights? Oh, oh, did oh. I? Oh, so, so let's. So we know what the you know what the laws are regarding civil liberties. You know how the Colorado Legislature has instituted these laws, and yet, as the Supreme Court a couple of years ago said, how the commission approached the law was so blatantly biased that the law itself cannot be the explanation for prosecuting against certain bakers of cake. The law itself cannot be cannot alone explain the persecution. It had to be personnel within the commission and its application. Well, I still go back to my original point. We all know that the bureaucracy should 
have its powers reduced significantly. That's the most direct solution to the problem we're facing when it comes to bureaucracy. But until that happens, and Cody, this is my question, until we can get that kind of political influence to reduce that authority, my question is, can we not, by some way, balance the ideological ratio within the bureaucracy or, God forbid, have an ideological test to be a bureaucrat? What political influence are you going to get in order to impose that? I imagine it could be the matter of fairness. After all, we've passed laws in the past where we've required radio programs to have certain balanced views when they presented the options. We've done that with the past when it comes to radio broadcasts. Could we not do it with regulators themselves? I mean, I imagine you can get more, you can get more political support for a balanced ratio of ideology than you could say in getting rid of the uh, bureaucracy altogether. No, more is always the wrong answer because all you're doing is you're just further perpetuating the problem because now you've given them a statute or given a law that that turns into a workaround. What constitutes a balance? Is it a 50-50 split to 60-40 combined? What about libertarianism versus conservatism versus liberalism versus socialism versus communism versus do you need an equal split of it and then if you come up with a new ism does that get its own split as well as soon as you get into this playing the game question with passing laws you just get into an interpretive nightmare and so the right if you get the political power in order to amend where we're at the right answer isn't to impose some sort of you know, fake balance that inevitably will be worked around or will just be ignored or not enforced by the next executive, the right answer is to do the right thing and remove the power. And so, uh, no, I, I wouldn't support the idea of, you know, using further government regulation and uh, government regulation to regulate itself. Like <laughs> we already talked about the problems with the Hatch Act and that one at least is, is somewhat well-intentioned. Um, everything's well-intentioned. Welcome to the liberal agenda. Um, but the progressive agenda, sorry. But uh, no, I, I don't like the idea of using more regulation in, in order to balance is always the wrong answer. The right answer is to always, you know, fix the problem by withdrawing the, the extra. So until our, I mean, maybe not for Chris, but until our libertarian anarcho revolution comes about, you're okay with the fact that 63% of federal service executives are Democrats. You're okay with the fact that the American Federation of Government Employees donates 94% of its contributions to Democrats. You're okay with this massive imbalance of ideology within the bureaucracy. I'm sorry. I didn't say any of that. Now I, just... That's what I heard. <laughs> um, so one by one. Well, federal unions are their own problem. That That's a huge issue that those should not be a thing. Um, so that's a, a problem in and of itself. Would I be okay with, you know, 63% of bureaucrats, senior officials being Democrats? Yeah, sure. I don't care because the bureaucracy shouldn't have that power over people's lives. But it does. Well, so what are you going to do? You're going to go in and impose political ideology requirements for individuals that go into a senior official status? I mean, we have diversity, inclusion, and equity offices already. Why not do it for ideology? Because those are bad. I don't, (laughs) you don't perpetuate bad with more bad. Who gets to decide whether or not you fall within a certain political political ideology? So now we're hiring another. We're going to have a government bureaucracy of political ideologies who has to evaluate every senior official appointee to determine their exact political Listen, ideology. I just want the bureaucracy's HR department to be run by Ron Swanson. That's really all I want. 
<laughs> as soon as you impose this program, there's another bureaucrat that's got to enforce it. There's a bureaucrat that's going to establish the test. Actually, Congress is going to write some super vague law that then the bureaucracy is going to have to establish the test. They're going to use some flow chart that inevitably is going to skew towards less freedom because government all the more its time spending doing that nonsense and not doing their job, which means they're not regulating as much. So I no, think- they're going to use that to regulate your lives because now they're going to keep everybody out of government that because anytime you don't agree with government power, you're going to get labeled as an extremist and not sufficient for government service. I'll no. just I'll throw one thing out there. I'm like very entertained by you guys. It's a side <laughs> debate. This is like at, the, at this point, uh, I'm just being, say pure, it's great. Just being pure facetious. <laughs> <laughs> the only one thing I'll throw out is having had some recent experience with the independent redistricting commissions in Colorado, mm. um, where there is like an ideological component to who can sit on the board. Like you could be four Republicans, four independents, four Democrats. Um, I can tell you, like as the state Republican Party we found like over 150 people trying to get those four spots in the unaffiliated slot on one of the commissions that were all fake unaffiliated. And so basically like they lied about what the Democrats like had them lie about what they were to get a spot on these commissions. And so like, that's what I would throw out is any ideological test that's created to attempt to produce balance or fairness, people can lie and, and change what they are and pretend to be something else. So I'm not convinced that some set of standards like that actually fixes it. If people want a position, like it's pretty clear they'll do what they want to go get it. And trust me, it was also quite expensive to do the research to make sure those 150 people stayed off the commission and we were able to do it. But if you have to go do that with all these commissions and all this fairness and all these ideological, like cost tons of money and people are going to lie anyway <laughs> would be my argument so like i said to cody and i was being more or less facetious but now i'm being quite <laughs> quite quite direct <laughs> we just suffer from the ideological imbalance of people who hate liberty being in the bureaucracy. we do i agree with you entirely i would be a fan of cutting most of these commissions. They are giantly completely unnecessary. And I think when a, a Republican um, governor or president gets in, they should get rid of them. Like I just heard the other day that a Colorado governor appoints, and I haven't checked these numbers myself, 3,500 people to boards and commissions when they get into office. Yes. Um, that's ridiculous. There's yes. no way that one person, and even though I know the Senate has some oversight over appointments, but Hickenlooper like went around that anyway, because he could and he wanted to. So no one person should get to appoint thousands upon thousands of people to sit in bureaucratic positions. So yeah, instead of replacing them with ideology, we agree with more, getting rid of the stinking commissions and boards is what I'd be a huge fan of. I'm not going to look into see if the military does ideological tests for its recruits. I got to look into this. Uh, it does some. There's some basic security testing that, like, you can't be in certain parties and whatnot. Interesting. Interesting. Like the Nazi party, probably. Yeah, probably. Communist, generally. Oh man. <laughs> uh, uh, communists are exempt from the uh, the Civil Rights Act. <laughs> I mean. We're just going to ignore that one. No, we can't ignore that one. We, we, well, we can for this episode, but we can't like forever. Okay. So that, that would be my, so this just to bow it up a little bit, right? Yeah, let's Is bow it up. Anytime you try to control the ideology of people, you're the, you're the bad guy. 
Um, yeah, I agree. I agree. Just, just assume <laughs> as soon as you're like, yeah, I know, but no, you're the bad guy. So that's a, that's a non-starter. Are we the baddies? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, I think the key is to weaken power, right? Like in everything, like to get bureaucracies out of our lives, get bureaucrats out of our lives, okay. you know, enforce individual rights and educate people and, and, you know, continue to kind of explain and, and help people understand. Um, and then when you're in the military context, you know, I don't think it's inappropriate to, to mandate some level of education on And I I would do it as like a discourse class. I'd like an upper level philosophy class style where, you know, you're all sit around the table and you got speakers that come in every week and you debate the the philosophies. I think that that would be a a great benefit for our, you know, military way of life. But, uh, you know, and and it's not necessarily mandated because you don't have to go to West Point if you don't want to. Right. I mean, it's not like it's a you're they're knocking down your door and forcing into your home. So, you know, I think it's important that we understand the founding of the country but if uh if the military and the bureaucracy didn't uh over expand their power then ideology wouldn't be all that important would it that's fair enough it's almost like we had a system that was designed to protect against the ideologies of individuals or even the majority when it would infringe on minority rights. And it's called the Articles of Confederation. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) to wrap it all up, critical race theory isn't what we wanted to focus on today. And in the future, again, we'll probably do that. We'll probably do more than a, you know, I looked this up on Wikipedia exploration, but our job today was really to figure out how do, how does the bureaucracy, the military specifically, and the bureaucracy on the whole, how do they operate when it comes to woke ideology or ideology and partisanship in general? Um, and how that kind of plagues those with regulatory power. And when we talk about this in the context of liberty, we're talking about it because the more power you give to government, the more the ideology of those constituent bureaucrats matters. The less power you give, the less their personal views have any bearing, right? That that's the that's the whole idea. Um, I think that kind of wraps up everything we've talked about today. I, I don't know if that's if we want to press further on that. Unless you guys have some last minute comments, but otherwise, I want to open it up to shout outs that you might have. I can uh, I can I can kick off that. Um, so I, I don't know who I've shouted out thus far, though. I'm, I feel like I'm going to go full circle. Um, <laughs> so I was just actually home visiting the, uh, the family, but I got to visit some of the uh, extended family that, uh, that I hadn't seen in a long time. Uh, so I mentioned the podcast, it came up. So if they end up tuning in and listening, uh, you know who you are, and, and I certainly appreciate it. And if they don't, then they'll never know that I talked about them. <laughs> that's a good way to do it that's a good way i have some terrible shout outs um that's a great question I, I will say since i missed the last episode i had a great time seeing our fellow lpr classmates at the retreats yeah and i know some of them do tune in so it is always good to see all of you and thank you for listening to us um yeah i don't know if i have any direct shout outs i mean i'll, I'll always shout out my wife who, who always listens i always do mm-hmm. that um lovely Stand yeah up. i i think that's no you can't go wrong and do that so um 
Yeah. Let's make the rest of us look bad. Listen, <laughs> listen, listen. You know, I can always shout out my dog. I love my dog. There I, you go. I've been, I don't know what it is, but in the past like couple of weeks, I've just been obsessed with my dog. She's just awesome. That's probably because I don't have any kids of my own. Okay, that wraps it up for us until next time, uh, where we will talk about something that is probably self-evident and will likely be forgotten. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at SEF underscore pod, as well as Facebook. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and anywhere else you listen. So with that, ladies and gentlemen, we'll see you next time.